Welcome to the study of God's Word recorded live at Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media or to tune into our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Now let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. If you guys would take out your Bibles, uh, you probably are already there. We read Psalm 8 together, which is where we're going to be. And I just want to express my thanks here at the final service of the weekend uh, for all of your love and hospitality this weekend. It's just been phenomenal being here with you. Uh, This is the kind of church where uh, when the pastor shows up, when the guest preacher shows up to uh, preach at a service, there's like 12 different people that ask him if he needs a cup of coffee or a bottle of water. You guys are just so loving and hospitable. And it's just been so encouraging for me to see what the Lord is doing here uh, in this place. Uh, We already read the text today, so I'm going to open in a word of prayer and then we'll jump into this passage. Lord, we come to you. We thank you for this psalm, this text, and I thank you, Lord, for this church. I pray that your blessings would fall upon it to a greater and greater degree until you return. Thank you, Lord, for your word, the the truth, Lord, that you've so clearly given to us. And my prayer, Lord, today is that for me, for every person that's here, every person listening, Lord, that we would be people who center ourselves around you, that we'd be aligned with you, that we'd be worshipers, Lord, that we would seek first your kingdom, that we'd be about you, that you might, Lord, fill our lives with strength and meaning and, Lord, dominion even. So we pray for it, Lord. We ask that you teach us from this passage. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Amen. Well, what I want to say at the beginning of this teaching is that the the psalm that we just read this morning uh, is a song, just nine short verses in length, uh, that ancient Israel, of course, would sing and pray to God. It's musical in nature. The prescript mentions that. It's to the choir master according to the Giddith, which is probably some kind of musical chorus or tune or meter or something like that. It's a song, it's a prayer, but what it's describing is what I want to tell you about. It's describing a person who is absolutely flourishing in life. Uh, This psalm is describing a person who is living the whole human experience as God originally designed us to experience and live. Uh, This person, we learn in the second verse, is humble They're like children before God, dependent upon God, and as a result, they are very strong. So their their lives are a reflection of the strength of God. They're making an impact in their world, in other words, because of the strength of God that is flowing through them. Uh, This person also is not searching and grasping for meaning and significance in the wrong things. No, they've found their meaning. They found their significance in God because even though they look at the stars of the sky and the moon in the sky at the night and realize that they are small in comparison to the galaxies, they realize that despite their smallness, there is a God who loves them, has called them, and has made them the pinnacle of his creation. And so they find their meaning in God. And this person 
is also a person who has dominion. Uh, they are in self-control. They are uh, working well in obedience to the Lord. They are serving and tending the creation that God has committed into their hands. Uh, if you saw this person today, uh, you might not describe them just like David describes them in this psalm. You might use modern language to say something like, man, that person, they're crushing it. Or uh, that person, they are on fire. Uh, or to borrow maybe a term from my three teenage daughters that I've left at home. Thank you, by the way, uh, for inviting me here. I've had a little break in the action. There's not a day that goes by that someone isn't crying in my house. So it's been nice to be away. No, I joke, I miss them a ton. But to borrow a term from them, they would say, this person is slaying it, all right? This person is slaying in life. Uh, so what you have in this psalm is, is maybe, for an example, a young mom who, though she's tired and stressed and has these little kids to be taken care of, she's handling it with grace and dignity. Uh, this psalm might be describing a young man who's gotten control of his bodily appetites, his sexual passions and desires, and is wholeheartedly seeking after God and his kingdom. Uh, this psalm might describe a, a student who has a full academic calendar and load and maybe even work on top of it to be able to pay the bills, but they're not dropping out of classes. They're not flaking on assignments, but they're putting forward their best effort every single day. Uh, this psalm might be describing a small business owner who has created a beautiful culture uh, in their workplace uh, that is a blessing to their employees, but also is creating something wonderful that is adding value to the community in which they live. Uh, this psalm might be describing a retiree who in their older years is not just feeding the flesh, but is pouring out their lives for the next generation, continuing to serve and make disciples until the day that Jesus returns. The person described in this psalm has dominion over their environment. That's the word that is used in the latter half of the passage, which, by the way, is the very thing that God made us for in Genesis chapter 1, to fill the earth, to subdue it, and to have dominion over it. He made men and women for this dominion. So this person is living the life that God intended us to live. And what I wanna to say to you at the beginning of this teaching is that the psalm gives us not just a description of this life, but it gives us the secret to living this kind of life. What is the access code? What is the key into this life of human flourishing? Well, the key is found in the first and final lines of the psalm. You might have even noticed as we read them out loud that uh, the first and last line of the psalm are identical. They're carbon copies of each other. David said at the beginning and end of the psalm, the book ends, he said, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That is the key. That is the secret into this life of flourishing. David was a man who was enraptured with who God is. He was a worshiper of God. He was a lover of God. Now, when David said, Lord, our Lord, 
I don't want you to miss the way that he's describing God. He uses the word Lord twice in our English translations, but they are actually two separate Hebrew words. Uh, the first Lord comes from the word Yahweh or Jehovah, the, the very name of God. Future translators had a hard time writing down the full name of God. They felt it was disrespectful, but David had no issues with that. He knew God. He wrote God's name. He spoke God's name. He had an intimate personal relationship with God. And I'm sure there's so many of you here today and you say, I relate to God in that way. He is mine and I am his. He is my father. I know him. I'm close with him. He is mine. But the second Lord that David spoke, Lord, our Lord, the second Lord is the word Adonai, which indicates sovereign or master or Lord, that position of being the Lord over someone's life. So David, in effect, is saying, I, I know God, I love God, I'm personal with God. We're on speaking terms with each other. I write songs about him and who he is. We're in relationship together, but at the same time, he's my master. He's my God, he's my sovereign. He's the director of my life and I must obey him. What a beautiful relationship David had with God. And he says of God, Lord, our Lord, how my translation says, majestic is your name. Or the New King James Version, how excellent is your name. When David said that, he wasn't saying to God something akin to, God, your name, Jehovah or Yahweh, that's a really cool sounding name. How excellent is that name? That's not what he was saying. What he was saying was, your character, God who you've revealed yourself to be in your word and who I've discovered you to be in my life, your character is what's amazing to me, excellent to me, beautiful to me. So as I said, what we have here is a man who is in love with God. Do I have any God lovers in the house today? You'd say, that's me, I, I do, I, I resonate with what David is saying. God's name is beautiful, his character is beautiful. I, I love who he is, he's my father, and I want him to be the master and Lord and sovereign of my life. Well, that kind of life is the life that leads to the beautiful, flourishing, whole person life described in this song. Uh, I remember years ago, I was at a uh, worship leaders conference. I'm not a worship leader, but I was asked to share a few words. But they had all these uh, incredible worship bands that were there uh, at this particular conference. And one night, they had uh, the worship leader, Matt Redman, there. He's written so many songs that the church has sung for so many years now. And yeah, he was leading us in a time of worship. And it was actually just like Pastor Ed was talking about with the New Life worship team. He was such a servant. You know, you, you never know when someone is like that successful, like what's their attitude going to be like? How are they going to be? But he was just such a servant. He was just loving on us. And in between songs, he was sharing uh, with us just different thoughts. And I'll never forget, there was this moment where he, he just, he began talking about how what worship does when we're loving God, celebrating God, including in corporate musical worship, which is one facet of worshiping God. He said, what we're doing, it's like we are aligning ourselves properly. 
You know when your car is out of alignment or you're driving behind someone on the highway that's out of alignment, it's like, it looks like they're riding sideways, but they're going straight. But when we're in alignment, when we're worshiping God, it's like we are living the life that God designed for humans to live underneath him, but above his creation. And, and so Matt was just talking about that. that. That's what I call him, Matt. We're on first name basis together. Mr. Redman was saying to us, we need to be aligned to God. One author said it this way. He said, the ideal spiritual life and the Christian way of thinking is one where all the essential parts of the human self are effectively organized around God as they are restored and sustained by God. This life is the human self fully integrated under God. That's what we're talking about here in Psalm 8. David's life in this song is completely organized around and integrated under God. All right, so that's the secret to having this flourishing life. Be a person who's loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, just like Jesus said. But what are the results that we might expect will come when we let God be who he should be, God? When we let him be the Lord of our lives, when we give him the priority, the first place in all things in our lives? What are the results? Well, I want to show you three from this passage today. If you're a note taker today, uh, the first one is this. You receive strength. You receive strength. Now, when I say strength, I'm not talking about that braggadocious, false strength. You know, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to accomplish that, and here's how amazing I am. I'm not talking about that kind of strength. I'm not talking about a, a faux strength or acting strong. But what I'm talking about is a childlike dependence upon God that then leads God to say, I will lend you my strength. I will take care of you. I will, I will infuse you with my strength because you are dependent on me and I'm the source of the strength that you need. That's what we discover in verse two, if you look at it again in your Bibles. David said, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. What is David saying there? He's saying that with God, even little babies and infants were strong enough to fight against the enemy and the avenger. Every opponent of God was able to be put down even through little babies and infants. You just imagine, like it's, it's like a comical verse almost, like a little army of babies, a little army of infants with their little camo on, you know, crawling over. And it's like, what are they gonna do? But they have, his, his image is they have God. Even the weakest human being, even the weakest fighting force, if they have God on their side, they can do anything. They can accomplish anything. And I love this picture because it's the way of God. It's God's way for us to lower ourselves under him, to celebrate him personally, to set him as the Lord of our lives. Because when we do, we receive strength. You guys know this. You know that it's the way of Jesus, isn't it? To look for those who are weak so that he can demonstrate his strength. Amen? I mean, when Jesus came, who did he always seem to have his sights set upon? It seems like he always saw the weakest person in the room. A man comes up to him and says, Lord, I have leprosy. 
I'm unclean. My society thinks of me as unclean, but Lord, you can make me clean. And Jesus' heart opens up to this man and he, he touches this man that no one else was willing to touch lest that uncleanness be transferred to them. But Jesus' cleanness is transferred to him. Or a woman like Mary Magdalene. Who would want to have anything to do with a woman like Mary who had been possessed by, the Bible says, seven demons? But Jesus found her, he delivered her, he loved her, and then he brought her into his ministry team. It wasn't like, a, you know, I've delivered you, you had seven demons, you're a little weird, so you gotta be over in the corner. He's like, no, you can be on my, in my inner circle, part of my ministry team. It's the way of God, it's the way of Jesus, looking for the weak so that he can infuse them with strength. I love this from the Lord. It's the way of Christ. The weaker you are, the weaker you admit to being, the more strength you receive from God. Jesus even quoted this verse, Psalm 8 verse 2, in an episode in Matthew chapter 21. Uh, it was in the temple precincts and he'd been healing many people that day and little children began singing, Hosanna to the son of David. Save now, son of David. And the religious leaders didn't like that the children were ascribing a messianic, Davidic title to Jesus. And so they rebuked, not the kids, but Jesus. You should stop them. They shouldn't be saying these things. Jesus quoted Psalm 8, verse 2, which we just read, and said to them, Have you never read, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? It was Jesus' way of saying to them, These little kids, they're on my team. They lowered themselves, and now they'll receive my strength. But it was also his way of saying to these highly intellectual, we're above you, Jesus, kind of guys, you're not on my team, and you won't receive my strength because you've not humbled yourself under the hand of God. The Lord is looking for those who are willing to say, I am weak. Can anybody say that to the Lord today? Lord, I'm weak before you. I need your help. I need your grace. I need your strength. I was talking to my dad recently, and he was uh, reminiscing with me about his uh, high school sporting athletic career, as men are prone to do. And uh, he was kind of looking back, telling me about the good old days of his football career and also his wrestling career. And then he brought up this really funny story of a, tr of a match that he had while he was in high school. His team, his high school down in Southern California, was up against Another school who in my dad's weight class had the reigning state champion. So my dad was scheduled to wrestle against the reigning state champion. He's kind of getting psyched up for it, you know, young teenage guy. All right, I'm going to wrestle the state champ. Apparently his coach pulled him aside. I can't imagine this really happening in modern times. Maybe this is a wrestling coach kind of thing. But he pulled my dad aside, and, and my dad's name is Bill. He said, Bill, uh, I need to tell you, you're going to lose tonight. <laughs> You have no chance against this guy. He is that good, but your goal is to lose less badly. 
because if you lose terribly, you're gonna cost our team a lot of points. So the goal is to lose less badly and cost our team fewer points. So my dad first was discouraged, but then he embraced the vision and he went out on the mat and he basically played dead for the first period. Just kind of flopped around, was dead weight. The guy couldn't do anything to him. So it was zero, zero after the first period. And he started thinking in the second period, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Maybe I can hold my own against this guy. Maybe my coach is wrong. And he said, I had just had the thought, I'm gonna try a move. And he said, the second I moved a muscle to try a move, this guy knew exactly what to do. I was on my back. I was pinned and I cost my team as many points as I could possibly cost them. I lost the match. Uh, a wrestler came up to me in between services and I was like, did I get it right? Is that how the points thing works? And he said, yeah, basically in baseball terms, what your dad did was give up a bases loaded home run, a grand slam <laughs> to lose the game. But what was happening there? His opponent was waiting for him to think, I'm strong, I got this. And I think we have an enemy, an enemy of our souls that is waiting for us to say the same thing. I don't need God, I don't need God's strength, I don't need God's help. Things are good. Things are coasting. Things are cruising. I don't need him in my life. I've got this on my own. The enemy loves when we think we're strong. That's when he can take us out. So the first thing, the person who humbles himself daily and says, I need God's strength. I love God. God, I love your name. I love who you are. You're my Lord. You're, you're my master. You're beautiful. That person receives strength from God. The second thing I wanted to show you is that this person receives, number two, meaning from God. Not just God's strength, but also meaning or significance from God. Wouldn't you agree that so often as human beings, we look to the wrong things for significance? We look to the wrong things for meaning. We look for the, to the wrong things to define us or approve us or make us feel that we are significant as human beings. We look to the wrong things so often, but this person who's centered themselves around God, they are getting their significance from God. The God of the universe is saying over them, you are important to me, and every facet of your life can be lived in direct relationship and connection to me so that even the smallest things that you're doing on Monday morning in your workplace can be done for my kingdom, for my glory, for my honor as an act of worship unto me. He can give our lives such great meaning. And, and, and what we see in the passage is David saying this in verse three and four. Look at it again with me in your Bibles. He said, God, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now, it's not hard for, for us to imagine David having a little episode or moment like this in his life. You might remember that David, before he became king, he was... Uh, uh, the eighth son of his father, Jesse, and his job in the family household was to tend or care for his father's sheep. He was a shepherd. There'd be long stretches, weeks, maybe even months, where he would take his dad's sheep out into the wilderness around Bethlehem, caring for them. And at night, alone, without the pollution of modern man-made light, David would look to the skies, and he would see the 
brilliance of the sun or the brilliance of the stars or the brilliance of the, the moon. And he, he would be filled, he says, with a sense of his own smallness. He, he asked the question, what is man in relationship to all of this? But he didn't just stop with a feeling of insignificance or smallness. He then said the, and that you're mindful of man and that you care for him or that you visit him. In other words, David was filled with awe that despite his smallness, in comparison to the grandeur of the galaxies, God cared for him. Now you might feel today like, oh, that's really cool. Probably what I should do is I should go out and I should go on a camping trip or something like that to really get in connection to my smallness in relationship to the bigness of nature. And you might even feel a little, little jealous of David, you know, like, man, all those weeks and months, even later when he was king and he'd have to run and flee for his life out in the wilderness or even before he was king, fleeing from his father-in-law Saul out in the wilderness. All these moments out in nature. Oh, you might say to yourself, I'm, I'm jealous of David. He got to feel his smallness because he was a man of the natural world. What I want to say is I think we ourselves, even though we're on our screens a lot and looking at TVs a lot, I think we have an advantage over David. His advantage over us was he spent a lot of time in nature, but our advantage is that we live in a scientific age. Uh, this last summer, it was my, my birthday in July, and uh, our family was on vacation, so we got to spend all day together, and that meant that I got to choose whatever I wanted to do all day long. It was always my choice all day. Dad, what do you want to do? What's next? What are we going to eat? You know, all day long. And we decided as a family that we were going to watch uh, a movie. Now, if you're a dad with three teenage daughters and a loving wife, uh, being able to select whatever movie you want to watch it's like a really big deal. You feel like you just won the lottery or something like that. So I always, when, when birthdays are coming around or whatever, I save the movie that I know they are going to balk at the most for that night. So I'd had it in my mind that I wanted to rewatch the movie Interstellar. Any of you guys ever seen this movie? It's about seven hours long. And uh, if you really want to understand what's happening in this movie, you need a PhD. And I don't have one of those, so it kind of goes over my head in a lot of ways. But it's a space sci-fi movie, and there's wormholes in it, black holes in it, astronauts in it, there's time travel in it, there's intergalactic, interstellar travel in it. In short, what I'm saying is, there's a lot of concepts in it that we have a loose affiliation to, even if we're uneducated people on these matters, that if you'd said them to David thousands of years ago, he'd say, what in the world is an astronaut? What are you talking about? Now, we live in a scientific age. This helps us understand when we look at the sun, when we look at the stars, when we look at the moon, we're, we're able to understand the staggering distance, the, the staggering size of these objects. And with each successive discovery that we make, we learn ever increasingly of our relative smallness in this universe. Now for some people, all this means is that the more we discover how small we are, all we're discovering is that we are more of an accident than we used to think we were. But for the Christian, for the believer, 
for the person who's centered around God, what it helps us understand is, God, it's amazing that you love us. That on the sixth day of creation, after making all of that, you said, it's time for my final piece. It's time for my crowning jewel. It's time for the part of my creation that is going to be above all the rest of my creation when I make man and woman in my image. How incredible that God would look at us in that way, that God would give us that kind of meaning in life. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those nature shows where they've got like a group of chimpanzees in their community and they're observing them. I mean, it's fascinating. It's like, here's their societal rules and here's the way they've built their community and here's the guys that are in charge and here's the ones that are inferior. Look at the society, the community that these chimpanzees have made. And I kind of look at it and I'm like, I mean, it's cool, but it's not that impressive. They're like picking bugs off each other, eating them, you know, stuff like that. It's not like what we're building. It's not what, like, what humans are like. We are far beyond because God has made us in his image. He has given us meaning. God sees you, brothers and sisters. You might feel small. You might feel insignificant. You might feel overlooked, but you're not overlooked by God. He sees you, he knows you, he loves you, he's chosen you, he's called you, he has a plan for your life. There's a novel that I like called Jaber Crow where the main character is named Jaber. He's a barber in an old time town and his whole life he struggles because he loves a woman that he feels she's too good for him. But he describes early on in his story uh, a time where he sees her on the streets and she looks back at him and makes eye contact with him. And he says, the brief laughing look that she had given me made me feel extraordinarily seen as if after that I might be visible in the dark. That's what this Psalm is describing. That there is a God who even though we are but a dot, a speck in the expanse of his creation, he extraordinarily sees us, sees you. You are visible in the dark to his loving eyes. So God gives us meaning, real meaning, true meaning. The last thing, though, that I want to show you that this life of centering ourselves around God gives us is dominion. It's the word dominion. Uh, David speaks of this in verse 5 through the end of the psalm when he says, yet you have made us or him or mankind, humanity, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And then he goes on to list various animals on the land and on the sea that humanity has dominion over. All of this recalls, of course, the first chapter of the book of Genesis, which, by the way, I know you as a church are studying on Wednesday nights uh, together. I think Genesis 15 or so is where you're at as a fellowship together. And on that first day of creation, or first chapter of creation, on the sixth day, God said that he made men and women to have dominion over the fish, birds, livestock, over all the earth and every creeping thing. So in other words, God created us to exert dominion over our surroundings, not as tyrants, 
but as servants. We were supposed to, with this dominion, cultivate the world as we know it. So I, I like to think of it like God made, during creation, the most complicated math equations. He made all the beautiful musical, musical notations. He made all the minerals of the earth. And then he put us in the world and said, go figure it out. Find those minerals. Find those codes. Find those uh, equations. Figure them out and apply them so that you can subdue and fill the earth that I have given to you. In other words, we're God's special creation with a special task, with a special job. We're not here to just wander aimlessly without a mission. And of course, on this side of the cross, we as Christians have something even better than merely filling the earth and subdue it, but subduing it. But we get to go into all of the world and to also make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that Jesus has taught us. And life in proper alignment with God gets this dominion aspect right. It does not seek to advance itself above God, as so many people do. If, if I were God, this is what I would do. Or if God is really God, then why does he do this? Advancing themselves above God, nor does it lower itself to a life of animalistic impulse, a, a life that is just following the passions and desires of the body. Instead, this person, like David said in the psalm, is below the heavenly beings, but is above the animal species, above the created order, right in the middle, reporting to God, managing all that God has entrusted to us. In Luke chapter 15, there's a great example of those two extremes. You might know Luke chapter 15 is the chapter that houses Jesus's parable of the prodigal son. Uh, there are two men, two sons in that story though. The first is the prodigal. He wanted his inheritance early. He went and spent it on partying and wild living until he was so broken by life that he found himself lower than the pigs that he'd been hired to take care of. You remember the story? He said to himself, if only I could eat the slop that I've been hired to feed to the pigs. And so he determined, I'm gonna go home I'm gonna see if my dad might let me come into his household, not as a son, but as a slave. But when he returned, his father saw him from afar off and ran to him, put the ring upon his finger, killed the fatted calf and threw a feast for him. He received him fully. And by the way, brothers and sisters, if you're here today and you're wondering if God is willing to embrace you, willing to accept you, you might be thinking to yourself, maybe I've done too much. God cannot forgive me. He'll not bring me back. He'll not bring me back into his family. You need to know we have a kind of God who will gird himself and run to you. He wants to receive you if you will receive him. But there was a son, an older son, who saw the actions of his father that day and was angry. He was miffed that his dad had behaved in this way. He rebuked his father. Why have you done this? He's been off living in this way. Why have you killed the fattened calf, thrown a party and a celebration for this rebellious son? And what I want you to see is that both of these sons were out of alignment with their true position. The first lowered himself to be like the animals. 
The second exalted himself above the Father. The first lived by his animalistic impulses and desires. And the second thought of himself like a God, smarter than the dad that God had given him. But when we are in a position of proper worship and love for God, we regain our proper position. We're not like the animals, nor are we more intelligent than God. We're in the middle. We're below him, below the angelic realm, but above creation. And when we worship the Lord, like David in this psalm, we get that dominion that God has given to us back. We get that mission back from him. Now, at this point, as I wrap things up, it's good to ask a couple of kind of soul-searching questions. It's good for us to ask how our lives are going. It's good for us to ask the question, who is the man or who is the woman that has this level of self-mastery? Who out there is actually flourishing like this? And if we're honest, there's even a temptation to kind of fake this a little bit, isn't there? You know, in the church lobby, your life's a mess. Someone says, how's it going? Oh, good, super good, flourishing. You want to say that. You want to believe that. You want to experience that. But who among us really has this level of strength? Who among us really turns to God only and exclusively for our meaning? Who among us has dominion and self-control? The book of Hebrews even talks about this issue, this problem. It quotes from Psalm 2 by saying in Hebrews 2 verse 7, you made us for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned us with glory and honor. You put everything in subjection under our feet. But now Hebrews says this, now in putting everything in subjection to us, God left nothing outside of our control, but at present, he says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to us. This is the Hebrews author way of saying, look around. We might have been created for dominion, but there's chaos. Creation wars against us. So many things are outside of our control hurricanes and natural disasters so easily overcome us. And then look at our own lives personally. It's hard to even keep our own schedule under control. We feel overrun. We feel we don't have dominion. But listen to what the author to the Hebrews tells us. He says, but we see him who for a little while was also made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, Jesus might taste death for everyone. So the question is, who really does live the whole person life? Who really has flourished as a human? And the answer is so simple. None of us but Jesus, amen? Jesus came and lived the perfect, flourishing life in total control, with total strength, with total meaning, total purpose, total significance, 
that you and I could never really live. And then died on the cross on our behalf and rose from the dead so that if we believe in him, he brings us into his family. And now, listen to me, hear this. As we walk with Jesus, as we sing and live a life of verse one and nine, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. As we live that way, guess what we get back? Progressively, little by little, from glory to glory, to use some New Testament terms for it, we get our dominion back. He begins to restore us more and more into the original intention and purpose that God had for us when he made us but that we lost because of sin. I'm gonna wrap it up today with a quotation from a, little, uh, uh, from a, from a children's book uh, that many of you may have read at some point called The Little Prince. You ever read this book? I read it this last summer just for fun. Uh, it's an interesting story. It's about a little prince of an asteroid or a little planet out in space and he makes a decision to go on a voyage. It actually reads a lot like a metaphor for Jesus. He comes to earth, and he, everything he sees on the way speaks to him of the brokenness of humanity, the depravity of man. But he comes to earth, and he's in a desert. He meets different animals. They're able to speak. They have conversations together. And one day, he meets a little fox. He'd never seen a fox before, but the fox had seen little boys before, and so they began to speak. And the little prince asked the fox about his life. What is life like for a little fox? And the fox said this. He said, my life is monotonous. I hunt chickens, and men hunt me. All chickens are alike, and all men are alike. So I get a little bored with my life. But if you were to tame me, my life would be full of sunshine. I would recognize the sound of footsteps different from all others. Other footsteps send me hurrying underground to hide, but yours would call me out of my burrow like the sound of music. And look over there. Do you see the cornfields? I don't eat bread. Wheat is of no use to me. Those cornfields don't remind me of anything, and I find that rather sad. But you, you have hair the color of gold. So it will be marvelous when you have tamed me. Wheat, which is also golden, will remind me of you. And I will love the sound of the wind in the wheat. The fox became silent and gazed for a long time at the little prince and said, I beg of you, tame me. I believe that that fox is like us in our natural state. Without God, without Jesus, without him in our lives, our lives are, as he said, monotonous, repetitive, without point or flavor or excitement. We're untamable. But when Jesus comes into our lives and does what could not be done by ourselves and tames us, we begin to get purpose and passion and meaning in life. And this is what we need, brothers and sisters, for Christ to tame us, to diffuse our lives with significance and meaning. Because it's only 
Jesus that can make us thrive. It is only Jesus that can truly tame our souls. Amen? Let's pray together, church, and ask God to do just that in us. Lord, we thank you for who you are today. We thank you afresh that even though we're so small in light of the cosmos, you love us. And we invite you, Lord, more and more into our lives to change and transform us from the inside out that we might experience the dominion that you have for us. I think, Lord, right now of a man whose life is off the rails, out of control. His passions have dominated him to the point that he's being driven into the ground. Lord, rescue. Lord, become beautiful to him and tame him. Lord, we ask that you do this in all of our lives. And as I pray, perhaps you're here this morning and you recognize that you don't yet know Jesus. The good news for you is that he came to live the perfect life that none of us could ever live and die a death in our place, taking all of our punishment in the cross. And we know that it was effective because he rose from the grave on the third day. And the Bible teaches that if you believe in your heart that Jesus has done this for you, and if you confess him with your mouth, you will be saved. You will be brought into the family of God. He'll wash from you all of your shame and guilt and imperfection. And he'll make you new and continue to renew you until the day he comes again. What you need to do today is to turn from your old life and believe in Jesus. And if you feel today that that describes you, I want you in your heart to say, Something like this to God. Say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Come into my life today, right now, and make me new. Forgive me of all that I've ever done and all that I ever will do. Thank you for sending Jesus to live a life I never could and to die death on my behalf and arise from the grave. Help me now, Lord, to live my life no longer for me, but now for you. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. God bless you guys. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Church. For prayer, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. To listen to this message in its entirety or to join us for our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.